Hello and welcome to the latest in the Balderton podcast series. This morning I am joined by Guy Levin, head of Codec. What's the official title? You head of uh, Codec? Executive director. Executive director. Sounds far fancier than it is. It does, yeah. It yeah. sounds very fancy. Uh, hello, Guy. Good morning. Hi, Ben. Thanks for coming in. Um, and Codec is a coalition for a digital economy. So you're a think tank, is that right? And you uh, you, you are the voice of the, the startup yeah, so I'd say we're, some, we're somewhere between a think tank and a trade association. We we try and be there uh, to represent digital startups to policymakers and make better better policy for the digital economy in the UK. So to jump feet first into the theme of representing digital uh, companies to the policymakers in the UK, we I think have to look first at Brexit, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we, it would be the elephant in the room if we didn't point at it straight away. You guys, Codec, have already surveyed your members in February, is that right? And 81% of uh, respondents wanted to remain in the EU. And on the post that you wrote for Codec, you also pointed out that Tech London advocates, their community, widely agree, as the Tech UK. Uh, lots of reasons given for wanting to remain. Access to a large single market, free movement of labour, having a seat at the table and stability, security, etc. So it seemed that there was a quite a unified voice resounding back at you as a result of this survey. What I'd like to ask is, what happens next? Now that you're, you know, you know that almost eight, well, over eight out of ten uh, members of, of Codec and therefore you can assume 8 out of 10 uh, members of the, the, the kind of tech economy in, in the UK want to remain. What do you do with that? What's, what's the next step for Codec? I, I think we're going to try and keep up the pressure. Um, do things like I think we're going to probably have to get a letter from entrepreneurs uh, in, the, in the press in the next few weeks, uh, maybe do some events. Um, try and find some interesting case studies and data behind it. So looking at, uh, I know uh, Dewdill, for example, have some really interesting data, uh, and they're going to try and look at uh, European founders uh, in the London and uh, how, how that's uh, changed over the last few years. Um, so I think we just want to be a, a prominent voice in the debate, speaking up for tech and saying that um, digital startups are better off uh, in Europe, and that's their sort of strong view. Sort of, there have been even more surveys since the one you mentioned. I think so Innovate Finance did one of their own as well, which found I think eighty-one percent uh, wanted to remain. Um, eighty-one is a popular figure. Yeah, it is the same as ours. Uh, <laughs> uncanny. We didn't coordinate. Uh, and then you're just getting also the sort of qualitative responses from individual founders who are deciding to kind of put their head above the parapet somewhat and sort of speak out and say so you've seen people like sort of uh, Tarvet from Transferwise, um, Tom Blomfeld from Mondo. Uh, Damien from Dewdill, uh, all these sort of founders are now starting to kind of warn about the potential impact uh, of Brexit. So I think we want to kind of also play a role in convening and sort of championing those voices. Uh, and I suppose, is that the way it actually works? Because I suppose a lot of people, people like me, people like uh, tech entrepreneurs who are busy doing other things, aren't terribly au fait with the world of think tanks and trade associations and how one influences policy on a on a day-to-day -day basis. And you've been around politics for a, a while. How do you actually get your hands dirty and, and, and metaphorically grab a politician by the lapels and convince them of your, your point of view? Um, there are many ways, but this, I think, is less about convincing politicians. So the politicians have their stated views on this, but I think are not that influential. As in, this is about convincing right. the public. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a referendum. It's not a kind of a vote in Parliament on this. So we need to be making the case kind of as publicly and as loudly as possible. Uh, and I think that means going 
through the press and going through uh, august podcasts like uh, <laughs> like your own. Oh, it's the first time this podcast has been described as august, Guy Levin. Thank you very much. But um, so that's very interesting. So the job this time for Codec is almost a, an amplification and a convening of uh, those voices within the digital economy, to use your own words. How's that? How's that going? I suppose. How's it going so far? What's What's I mean, I think it's going to accelerate as we get close to the referendum. As uh, as we approach June, uh, this is going to continue to rise up, um, rise up the agenda. One of the things I learned in my years in politics was how little day-to-day politics affects most people's lives, and how it's yeah. just sort of maybe a sort of distant thing they see on the news, kind of in passing and on an evening, but it's, it doesn't occupy their sort of every waking hour. And this was something that for us sort of policy wonks back in sort of Westminster Village found really policy hard to believe. Wonks, that uh, the people didn't care about the new consultation document that we just spent months working on. Um, <laughs> but it's sadly true. So we need to be trying to kind of talk to people where they are. So I think we're going to start uh, doing more on Facebook about it and just get as loud as, as, loud as we can as, as we approach the referendum. And I suppose hone in on a few uh, interesting stories and, and and points that will resonate with a wider community, I suppose, as if you say the job is now to influence the people because it is a vote, you know, you, you need to influence the people at large. Is that where the entrepreneur stories become really interesting and those points of view from people like Tom at Mondo and Tarvet, so. etc.? Because the kind of big macro things are really hot, sort of intangible and nebulous. The sort of, no one really quite knows what a single market is or sort of the European economic area, all these sort of acronyms and uh, technical terms. But if you have a sort of founder saying, this is actually going to day-to-day make my business harder, I'm not going to be able to sort of sell or operate or trade in these in these countries or I'm going to have to jump through new hoops to do so, then that's kind of is quite powerful. I think I agree. Well, it's interesting because there was a poll, another poll that I, I can't remember the stats, so I don't have it in front of me, that was uh, how well informed the public in general feel about the... Brexit remain campaign about the in-out referendum. And there were people, just over 30%, who felt very confirmed in their views as to where we were going. And then a huge proportion, maybe 45 or so percent, that said they were inadequately informed either way. I'll put the actual stats in the the text below this podcast, (laughs) because I read this on the train on the way in. Uh, And I suppose if there's still four out of ten people or more that feel inadequately... uh, versed in the arguments either way is that where codec can swoop in uh, and i guess better improve the the information that that people have um, i think it's all to play for the, the fact that there are lots of undecideds in this election in this referendum is really important um so yeah we would definitely want to be there playing a kind of positive role in telling the stories and giving what we see as a sort of an obje- objective version of the facts i'm sure others uh <laughs> would sort of push back push back maybe um I think it's yeah. There's a really strong arguments for why UK tech is better off uh, in in Europe with a seat at the table, helping shape the debate. Um, I went to the sort of debate tech event a few weeks ago, sort of at um, here East, where they had the major sort of candidates for London mayor speaking, and the UKIP candidate said something which I thought was really interesting. He said. Um, Look, look at US, look at China. They're not bound by the red tape of Brussels and their entrepreneurs are thriving. And to some degree, he was right. The, the, the sort of, there is a lot wrong with Europe. There is quite a lot of red, red tape that comes out of Brussels. But what he got astoundingly wrong uh, was forgetting the fact that the US and China have huge domestic single markets. That these are countries with hundreds of millions, if not billions, in the case of China, sort of citizens in their own country. 
we don't have that. We've, we're an island of, uh, of 60, 70 million, but across Europe, there are 500 million consumers. And so what we need to do in Europe is really try and create a single market across that, across that in order to allow us to compete. Because you will see yourself with your startups that sort of Bolton backs and across the ecosystem, one of the real challenges is scaling up. Uh, and often co companies may well move to the US. Uh, countries, companies from other parts of Europe may well move to sort of hubs like London or Berlin. Um, but one of the challenges is scaling up across the continent. So one of the things I think that's key in this sort of whole Brexit European debate is the potential for Europe to really compete on a digital in a digital way with those sort of other giants elsewhere in the world. And you only do that by creating kind of common standards, shared regulations. So in fintech, uh, they love, one of the reasons they love the EU is that there's a thing called passporting, which means that if you are regulated in the UK by the FCA, that's good enough for the regulators in sort of the rest of Europe. So you can just passport your existing approvals and regulations to other parts of Europe. If we left the EU, who knows, would that still be the case? So I think that's a sort of a really interesting part of the argument. And that, you know, access to a, a single market and that uh, availability of a 500 million plus marketplace for, for startups, do you think that's the most compelling argument for remaining in the European Union for startups, entrepreneurs, digital economy? I think it's that and alongside the pool of talent, the fact that um, we, we do sit in this, that, that pool of 500 million people and uh, there is free movement of labour within the EU. Uh, immigration is a major concern of people who want to leave the EU, but I am happy to defend the sort of free movement of labour. I think the fact that we have a hugely skilled, talented labour pool here within Europe is great. Look, look around sort of tech city or the tech clusters across the UK and there are sort of countless founders from outside of the UK and also countless sort of team members. Most offices sort of we visit, I'm sure you visit, have kind of multiple languages spoken, multiple nationalities. Absolutely. And that's part of what makes the UK's sort of tech sector so, fan so fantastic. Uh, if we were to leave the EU, again, we don't know what that would mean for sort of the future of EU migration, um, but it would at least create uncertainty and risk. Absolutely. And, and, and I suppose some of the companies you've mentioned early on, especially uh, Tava and Enriquez from TransferWise, if we wind forward the clock and migration is suddenly uh, comparatively thwarted if, if uh, Britain leaves the EU, would the next Tava and Henrika start their business in the UK or would they start it somewhere else? It might be started in Berlin or uh, Paris or somewhere that remains in the EU. So there is indeed a, a risk there, I suppose. You mentioned uh, the argument very briefly that the UKIP candidate that you listened to a few weeks ago put forward about the single market. Uh, are there any compelling arguments that have come out of the uh, out campaign that you almost feel are somewhat legitimate? And, and I almost speak about it as if we've already decided that it's completely rubbish because of the 81% against. But, you know, is there anything? No, I think there are. I think it's absolutely fair to say that there are sort of the urge from Brussels is often to regulate. It is often to kind of impose new rules. And um, there is, I think, a legitimate worry about uh, entrepreneurs being bound up by red tape that comes from the European Union. Um, one of the things I, though I'd say sort of to counter that is that the UK is a kind of fairly prominent voice in, in Europe fighting that. Uh, and if we were to leave, we'd probably still end up bound by much of those re regulations because we'd probably still actually try and negotiate our way back into the single market. Uh, so in the same way as Norway does, um, who are bound by the rules but don't have a seat at the table making them. 
So one of the concerns, I think, is that if we left, the balance of power in Europe would shift drastically away from the quite Anglo-Saxon, entrepreneurial, pro-innovation approach that the UK tends to champion towards the slightly more sort of corporatist, sort of sclerotic, uh, <laughs> sort of Southern European or uh, sort of Central European sort of approaches. So if on an issue like data protection, for example, the UK was kind of championing quite a pragmatic, kind of relatively pro-business approach, uh, whereas others in Europe were arguing from a much stronger position about the fundamental rights and on privacy. And obviously there's a balance, but it's where on that sort of pendulum do you want to be? And without UK at the table, it would have ended up so significantly further in another direction. So the UK's influence cannot be understated. I think that's right. People often say that we get sort of beaten and have to just accept what these faceless bureaucrats are imposing on us. But actually, we have a strong seat at the table. Don't always get our way. There are 28 countries in, in Europe, uh, but do shape particularly the digital agenda. We are seen as one of the leaders on tech, uh, along with countries like Estonia. And when sort of the UK comes out with proposals on things like the digital single market, they are listened to and sort of do have significant influence. So it's an interesting few weeks ahead or a couple of months ahead before the uh, referendum. But um, I suppose we expect to see a, a lot more from Codec in terms of events, in terms of other things that you guys will be doing to uh, champion, uh, champion the cause, I suppose. On the subject of uh, politics more close to home, budget was only last week as we record this. What does that mean for the digital economy? I saw you did a, a Medium post about it, but is there anything you'd like to develop on? Yeah, I, there were a few sort of tech announcements in it. Uh, I think it was more, the more interesting thing for startups probably is the sort of big tax changes. There are lots of tax changes there that will help sort of small business and entrepreneurs. It's still quite interesting that entrepreneurs relief has been extended to investors. Uh, so for now, for the first time, uh, investors in uh, early stage companies will be able to get entrepreneurs relief, which is a significant sort of tax break. Uh, on capital gains, so that should encourage even more money to, to go into early stage companies. One thing I thought was quite interesting in the more techie announcements in the budget was perhaps the government for the first time trying to grapple with some of these longer term questions uh, around sort of the future of work and automation and sort of the second machine age. Um, there was a recognition about the sort of changing nature of work. So, for example, there are new tax allowances for the sharing economy. There was a new help for self-employment with um, some national insurance being cut. There was a, a section tucked away in the budget about lifetime learning. So it was saying that we needed a review of how people retrain and upskill and uh, learn throughout their life. And that was explicitly tied to technology and the fact that the work is changing and the future is changing. And so I think it was all slightly piecemeal, but it gestured towards at least government thinking about some of these quite tricky questions about what do we do when driverless cars come on stream and lots of drivers are out of work or how do we ad adapt our workforce to the, sort of the modern economy that's more flexible and the blurring of the lines between a job which creates income and the rest of your life whereas now you may well have a kind of portfolio career that sort of Alex Stephanie talks about and the business of sharing or something where you maybe uh, do some sell your skills on a online platforms for a few hours a week or rent a bit of your home on Airbnb or drive a, uh, for a ride-sharing platform. And this is a move towards a kind of more flexible future. So I don't know whether I'm over-reading this, but it, there are definitely a few bits in the budget that sort of hinted towards... Um, I'm sure you're not over-reading it. It's great and it's very reassuring, shall we say, to, to 
hear a budget and see within there that there's a recognition of the, the gig economy, as they say, and with the changing, changing face of work. What are they doing about it? Was there any immediate actions almost uh, in, in response to those specific things or is it still a bit nebulous and still a bit early, do you think? Um, I think the, the moves were all quite small. So on the, the sort of sharing economy, we saw there were sort of two new £1,000 tax allowances announced in the budget. So you'll be able to um, make £1,000 a year to, uh, and not have to do a tax return or pay any tax on it, for example, if you rent out your parking space on Just Park. Right. <laughs> uh, or share some space in your home on, is it Roomy? The, sort of the, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so those sorts of things wouldn't have previously come under any sort of tax breaks. You'd have you had, to do, a had to do a self-assessment. And that creates a huge amount of friction for probably ordinary people who are just... Um, I had to do one, boring. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a long way to go. And so particularly on self-employment, there was a government did a review recently uh, led by Julie Dean, who founded the Cambridge Satchel Company onto self-employment. But it didn't really get to any of these big questions about how do you deal with pensions and sick pay in a world where people don't have long-term, full-time jobs, that they are sort of maybe much more freelance and working through various platforms. So I think there's really interesting long-term questions about do you try and detach things like pensions and sick pay and maternity pay and things away from employers and somehow attach them to the individual rather than to the company. Um, so that then various employers and various platforms could all pay into some pot, uh, maybe with support from government. So I think there is a long way to go, but it's great, as you say, that government is sort of starting to think about some of these things. It is, and there seems to be a genuine uh, progressive thought within uh, UK policy with regards to tech, uh, and, uh, you know, last week I was talking to Luke Lang from Crowncube and uh, Luke and Jeff from Cedars as well, of course, have benefited from progressive financial legislation in that um, it's the only place in the world, near as damn it, where you can actually launch an equity crowdfunding platform. Uh, when you look at the states, the jumpstart, so jumpstart Our Business Act has been revised a few times and still it's not really tenable to do equity crowdfunding over there. Same in the, re in the majority of Europe. Is that true across the board? Do you think that will remain as well a, part, a key part of UK legislation, that there is an innate progressive nature within there? I think so. I, I think we're lucky that both George Osborne and David Cameron got the tech bug several <laughs> years ago. Uh, did you help? Because you used to, uh, used to work closely with George Osborne, didn't you? Uh, I, I did. I used to work for him, but I can't claim credit. I was, um, <laughs> I was working alongside some great people like Rohan Silva and Steve Hilton, um, and it was very much them who were sort of championing this. <laughs> I was very much at the beginning of my career in those days, and it was a bit above my pay grade, but uh, I'm happy <laughs> to pick not. up and continue the, sort of the mantle. <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys, that was funny. <laughs> I, I, I threw you off track. But no, in the, the kind of... the, the uh, the, the progressive the progressive nature, do you, is that something innate within British politics or do you think it's a more recent thing, post-recession maybe? Or, uh, I ask because I'm fascinated, really. Well, I, I, uh, you're joking, but I think it is something to do with the people at the top of politics, that right. there was this uh, recognition early on. Um, sort of Osborne went, went out to California, I think in 2007 uh, or 2006, and came back for having visited Silicon Valley and kind of it really shaped his view of... Um, what the UK should do, and that's that's for Stark. Um, so I know I'm optimistic about the future in terms of policy. There are a few things in the works. I know at the start of the year, government announced they were going to do a digital strategy. Uh, we're trying for the first time to bring together all the different strands of, of thinking and think in the long term. And it's 
I think the reason we haven't seen it yet is they've now realized that it's an incredibly ambitious task to try and pull all that together. So I've no idea when it's going to be published or even what it will contain. Uh, but there is definitely thinking going on in government about, about some of these things. It's, and a codec involved in, in the shaping or, you know, uh, the making of that particular agenda I do we try we so I wrote a sort of submission to it with some I think 16 ideas for what it might contain um, and I'm hoping that some of them make it into the final and how does it actually work behind the scenes once again you know not being terribly familiar with the work of uh, trade groups uh, think tanks etc you just genuinely write a letter to the, the relevant people and hope that they pay attention to your ideas above those of other people and is that how it goes that's part of it, yeah. If yeah. You, I think there is a, to some, to some degree, a sort of meritocracy of ideas, and if you yeah. are able to come out with sort of well-argued uh, proposals that are sort of interesting and new, that helps. And um, supported by the community, I suppose, exactly. helps with coding. Um, but yeah, we, so we did submission to the strategy. I've met with some of the officials involved, so some of the civil servants working on it. Well, you're the hidden power behind tech, oh, a Whitehall not, guy. Not I think that's what I'm getting from this. So, if only. <laughs> so very, very quickly, almost to sort of end on. You almost restarted, kickstarted Codec when you uh, went in, in in 2014. Is that right? Yes. So spring 2014, almost exactly two years ago. Yeah. So I remember reading the piece that, that Ollie Smith wrote when he was at City AM, uh, describing the organisation as laying dormant for a few months, and then you had come in to almost recharge the organization and, and restart it as it was founded by Mike Butcher and Jeff Lynn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mentioned Jeff twice this podcast now. And, uh, Hi Jeff. <laughs> hello Jeff. And, um, what, what was the driving force behind your decision to almost pick up an organization that was maybe a bit unloved for a couple of months? Cause that's a hard job, right? So something that has been, um, uh, well, to use Ollie's words, laying dormant. What, well, I think that was part of the, part of the appeals. Jeff, um, I'd left government at the end of uh, 2013, was looking for something new in the tech world. Um, and I was speaking to Jeff about Kodak. And it was this great opportunity. Here was this organization that had existed, but had been had fallen dormant after it, my predecessor sort of left. Um, and a chance to kind of pick it up and reshape it and make it my own. And um, I've always wanted to do something a bit more entrepreneurial. <laughs> it was, yeah, a big learning curve and quite sort of risky in some ways going from sort of a government department where even if it's quite slow, you don't have to worry about kind of the paycheck coming out on time and sort of the back office working. And if your email goes down, there's someone you can sort of shout at and <laughs> it sort of works um, to going and having to do all that myself and figure out kind of how do you raise sponsorship? Uh, what do we do about sort of media? What, do, what are our priorities? Um, how do I get the website to work and all those sorts of things? Um, but it would be, it's been fantastic fun. And we now... Well, over two years on, I, I suppose at this point, what are your greatest hits? If you if you were to put together a compilation album now of Codex greatest hits over the last uh, couple of years, uh, is there any uh, particular things and moments that you're you're particularly proud of? But I'm I'm really proud that I think we've been able to kind of influence the debate. So I think things like our startup manifesto, uh, things like the um, immigration campaigns we've been running. Uh, have really mobilised the community, community, and I think are shaping, helping shape policy. Um, I'd like to think that some of the things we're doing now um, around the London mayoral election, around the European referendum, yeah. uh, are going to make a difference. 
it's really hard. So one of the things when I started, I was talking, especially talking to lots of entrepreneurs. They wanted to know, so what are your KPIs? How are you measuring impact? What are, you, what are the sort of uh, indicators <laughs> like of success? Uh, and it's quite hard to sort of to say because essentially we're trying to influence. And that may just mean that the one person who's holding the pen on the document, that's the policy document, sort of is feeling nice that day and they read your thing and they decide to make the change. Um, and you, you can't attribute that. So sort of, it's impossible to say to what extent we've we've been successful, other than the the sort of position we now are happy to occupy. The fact that you get uh, we get far more inbound requests now from government departments, uh, other think tanks, um, the media, and others for to to help convene, to offer a view, to feed in, um, and that's something I'm really proud of as well. How do you work with other think tanks? That's quite interesting. Do think tanks that occupy another level of expertise or represent a slightly different group of people? Do they yeah, request exactly. to work with so, uh, We work very closely actually with Tech UK, which is a much bigger UK trade association. Uh, they kind of have members ranging from the kind of the big US tech giants down to right. some kind of SMEs. But they, I, I, I think it's fair to say, aren't very well represented among startups. And so... We've managed to work together really well, taking delegations over to Brussels to meet MEPs. And so Codec would bring a few startups, founders, they would bring a few of larger or mid-sized tech companies. And it was a really good sort of good fit. Um, so I, yeah, always happy to partner and work with others, largely because Codec day-to-day is just me. So um, I'm very constrained in what I'm able to do. And so being able to leverage support and partnerships from others is a big part of it. Fantastic. Thank you for sparing the time, Guy. Uh, a quick word on what we can expect next from Codec, I suppose. So, currently uh, working on a London startup manifesto. It's a bit delayed, but we're hoping to get it out before the election. Um, also going to keep up the momentum on the EU referendum. Uh, and I think the third thing to say is we're keeping a close eye on the Industry Powers Bill, the IP Bill, as that's going through Parliament, because I think we're quite concerned uh, that some of Snooper's Charter, right? Exactly. That it may well Use damage street name. <laughs> <laughs> may well damage um, the reputation and perception of the UK digital economy, as well as imposing some kind of quite drastic costs and things on uh, on startups. Very best of luck, guy. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you.